Well, we're making a start with Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, and start off there in verse 1. The whole prophecy that you've got here was seen by Isaiah about Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, some of those kings, according to the historical record, were kind of quite good. Um, and yet, when you read here about, uh, about the state of the nation, it was absolutely terrible. Now, I think what that shows then is that good leadership does not necessarily um, bring about people who, on an individual level, are spiritually minded. And I think that is one thing that you get out of the whole prophecy of Isaiah, that it is an appeal for ordinary people to be spiritually minded, no matter what the state of their leadership. And the problem with church life is that we can easily just be sort of carried along with the way things are going, because that's the way that the people running the church uh, have set it up to be, for good or for bad. And yet personal spirituality is actually something different. Now, he starts off in verse 2, Hear heavens and listen earth. And I think the point of that is that the heavens were the, uh, the ruling powers within Judah at the time, and the earth was the ordinary people. So he starts off by saying, look, this is for absolutely everybody. And you see that really in verse 10 as well. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers. Listen to the law of our God, you people. So the parallel is between rulers and ordinary people, and that's what you've got in verse 2, heavens and earth. So God complains in, in verse 2. He's pouring out his heart here about his own feelings about them. He says in verse 2, I have nourished and brought up children. Now that may be a fair translation in the context, but the Hebrew words that are translated nourished and brought up, they really carry the idea of exaltation. And that phrase is usually translated to exalt and magnify. I have exalted and magnified my children. And uh, that's how the phrase is translated, if you're making notes, Ezekiel 31 verse 4, Daniel 11:36, and Psalm 34 verse 3. So then what it's saying is that God has exalted his people very, very highly. And Balaam's prophecy makes that clear, where he saw the whole of Israel in their tents, and he says, how beautiful you are. And he talks about how God has seen them as so beautiful, and how God has highly exalted the people. Now, whether that really means that he highly exalted them uh, in the eyes of the Gentile world, I'm not so sure, because apart from Solomon's time, I'm not sure that uh, Judah or Israel were really that highly exalted uh, in the eyes of the Gentile world throughout their history. But they were highly exalted in God's eyes. They were his beloved children. And by our status in Christ, through being baptized into Christ and abiding in the covenant, we are seen in this same exalted position because we are seen as the Lord Jesus Christ, nonetheless. And yet despite that, they had rebelled, they were really thankless children who had turned upon the loving father and you got that picture of course in the the, 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 prod the prodigal son the loving doting father abused by the son the prodigal now of course before you say well yes that's not quite me just think about the prodigal parable there were two sons and the story ends the curtain uh, goes goes down 
with the older son, the self-righteous son, outside of the father's house by his self-righteousness. So often in the Lord's parables, there are two groups of people. There are those who uh, sin and repent and come back, and those who are the self-righteous. In another parable, the two sons again, the one says, yes, I will go and obey you, Lord, and he never does. And the other one says, no, I will not do what you say, Father. And then he repents and comes back. So we're in either one of those two categories. And if we are to be those ultimately saved, we are in the category of the serious sinner. And so this talk about Israel as the thankless child who abused the, the loving, doting father who so highly exalted them, this is us. And you may think, well, wherein is that me? Well, I'll ask you, do you feel exalted and high and lifted up? Of course, we think, no, 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 I must be humble. No, no, no. Not, of course, exalted and high and lifted up in, in the eyes of the world, but in God's eyes. This is how he sees us. That really and truly, he does have an extremely high uh, opinion of us because we are in Christ. Now, verse 3 goes on. The ox knows his owner. And the donkey, his master's crib, his owner. Well, literally his buyer, the one who bought him. And it's the same word that's translated redeemer. The ox knows his redeemer, the one who bought him. And straight away, we, of course, reflect that we are the ones who have been redeemed, who have been bought at great price by, as the New Testament says, the precious blood of Christ. So then there should be some intuitive bond between us and God and the Lord Jesus who, who redeemed us just as there should have been between, a, his, well, between an ox and his owner and between uh, Judah and their God. He redeemed them out of Egypt, just as we were redeemed out of the world, went through the, the Red Sea, baptism, etc. So there should be this intuitive bond between us and God. And if there isn't, it's because, as he says here, you have cast it off consciously. And he concludes verse 3 by saying, But Israel doesn't know me. My people don't consider. The wonder of it all they didn't even think about. Now that can be you and me so easily. Living the unexamined life. Not really in touch with ourself nor our relationship with God. Just meandering onwards in our life on autopilot, doing what seems good, what feels good, uh, what seems immediately right drifting forward as in a dream, with no real sense of God or, or reality. And that is what is called here rebellion, that calls for judgment from God. Now, if we are in covenant with God, as I say, by baptism, and if we abide in that covenant, and we live in, in hope of his future glory for eternity, and we know that we, in his eyes, are highly exalted because we're in Christ, then really and truly, you cannot but consider, how can we live on autopilot? Of course, we live in a world that does just that, that, that just meanders onwards in a dream, half conscious. If we are more fully conscious of God's love and our position before God, then we will consider, and there is a sense of reality, a sense of urgency in our spiritual life. Verse 4, O sinful nation, and he uses the word, the Hebrew word goy, which is usually the word used about the Gentile nations. 
Now, when God's people are rejected, they are treated by him as the world. And in the context of the breaking of bread, you have that in the first of Corinthians 11, where he says that we should examine ourselves, lest we be condemned with the world. If we, in the end, are not God's people, then all that's going to happen at the Day of Judgment, as I see it, I say all, um, in, in quotes, but what's going to happen is that we will simply be sent back into the world. You wanted this world, this was your way, you so wanted to be with them, okay, so be with them, and die with them. And that's why, in so many Old Testament prophecies, in his con condemnation of his people, God speaks of them as Gentiles. He then tells them how they really are. You sinful nation, you sinful goy, you are a people loaded down with iniquity. And that, of course, recalls the Lord's appeal. Let those who are heavy laden come to him, and he will exchange their load for his load. That's Matthew 11:28. So it's like the analogy of changing masters in Romans 6 that we are slaves of sin, but then we become slaves of righteousness. So with that uh, metaphor there in Matthew 11:28, that we have one load and we exchange it for another. So there is no total release from any load whatsoever. But this is the great paradox that uh, people want to be free of any load, of any religious kind of uh, conscience, uh, of any answerability towards God. They want to be free from the concept of being a servant or a slave. They want radical freedom, that is, freedom to do exactly how they want, as they want, without any consequence or answerability to any higher power. But once you live like that, you are a slave of sin, you are heavy laden. And the great paradox is that for those of us who perceive that and choose the lighter burden of the way of Jesus, for those of us who choose to be slaves of righteousness, this is the way to ultimate freedom, that throughout eternity we shall be radically free to serve and do uh, as we want, uh, not, not as servants, um, but more than that, as radical free agents, but doing what we want to do, which is righteousness. You who deal corruptly, verse 4 continues, children who deal corruptly. Now, often in the Hebrew Bible, the terms that are used for condemnation are also the words that refer to the actual sin being committed, which warrants that judgment. That's because sin is its own judgment. And the Hebrew word that's used here is an example. Now, three times in the record of the flood, we read that the earth was corrupt, Genesis 6, 11, and 12. And yet four times the same word is used regarding how God would therefore destroy or corrupt the earth, straight on in Genesis 6, 13, 17, 9, 11, and 15. So any indulgence in sin is in fact an indulgence in condemnation. They corrupted themselves, so they were corrupted. They were destroyed. In other words, they destroyed themselves. This is why Jesus could say in one sense, I condemn nobody. You could say, well, he meant that because it was the Father who condemned or condemns through him. But I prefer to see it this way, that he says, I myself condemn nobody. The implication is so... Where does condemnation come from? It is self-condemnation. It is living out condemnation now. Because in essence, 
we make the answer now. In essence, the judgment is now. It's not as if the books are closed and who knows what's going to happen and then the day of judgment comes. We are living out God's judgments right now by our behavior. So, indulge yourself in sin, you're indulging yourself in condemnation, corrupting yourselves, destroying yourselves. They've forsaken Yahweh, verse 4. They are estranged and have turned backward. But later on in Isaiah, and there's a lot of connections uh, throughout Isaiah, which leads me to think that even if there, there was a different prophet uh, speaking at the end of Isaiah, in these sections about uh, the restoration from Babylon, it would seem that there is one Isaiah in the sense that, under inspiration, the editor uh, brought the whole thing together in one, in one package. And the Spirit of God, in any case, was uh, working through this whole long prophecy. So there's a lot of connections between the beginning and the later parts of Isaiah. And this is one of them. Uh, here, the people of Israel turned backward from God. They turned away from him. They turned their backs, turned their face away from him. But in Isaiah 42:17, it says that idolaters in the day of condemnation will turn their backs upon their idols, turn their face away turn backward from their idols, but too late. So the picture is of those who are condemned that they have turned their face away from God because they want to turn to idols, then in the last day they turn their face away from the idols. So they are left in a terrible limbo. Why is there so many of these, why are there so many of these pictures of condemnation in the Bible? You could say that it, they outweigh the pictures of acceptance. The whole sad history of Israel is really the history of a nation gone wrong. Well, I don't think that's negative psychology. In fact, even now, a lot of teaching at university level, particularly in the sciences, is done using what is called problem-based learning. Look at catastrophes, look at something that went wrong, and figure out the right way. And God knows best, and in his wisdom, he has given us all this, if you like, negative example. Because just think of that, of having turned away, turned your face away from God, because you want to worship your idols, you know, you're saving money for the, the nicer house, the nicer apartment, for the uh, decoration you're going to do, for the nicer car, for this, for that, the other. And then in the last day, you turn your face away from that in disgust, and where are you? You're in an unbearable limbo. So whilst there is not literal hellfire, the experience of condemnation is going to be so psychologically awful that the, the, the worst pictures of Dante's Inferno, um, I think, represent adequately uh, the psychological trauma that people will be in. So then, verses 7 and 8, your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. Foreigners devour your land in your presence. But the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a besieged city. Well, this must surely have reference to the Assyrian invasion of Judah at Hezekiah's time, burning the cities of Judah until Jerusalem was left alone, holding out against them. So that, I think, is the historical context here. But... Jerusalem is to be saved because, verse 9, God had left to us a very small remnant. Otherwise, they would have been as Sodom. But they were as Sodom. Verse 10, hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. 
So unless God had left us a small remnant, we would have been as Sodom, but we are Sodom, verse 10. So I think that shows, if nothing else, how God is prepared to save people for the sake of a third party. And ultimately you see that in, in his work for us in Christ. Now in verse 8, the daughter of Zion was left like this shelter in a vineyard. It was left like a besieged city. And then in verse 9, the same word, God left us a very small remnant. So it was all by grace. Jerusalem didn't survive because it was more righteous, but because God left a small remnant. Now, there's a difference between God saving them because of a small remnant and God saving them because he left them a small remnant. So even the existence of that small remnant that I assume was Isaiah and the school of prophets around him, that even they were only left faithful by God's grace because God left them. God created them, and that's why Jerusalem was left uh, by grace. So then, really, you see here extreme grace. They were Sodom. And in Deuteronomy 29, verse 23, and if you're reading the Bible Companion, that actually happens to be our, our other portion of the Old Testament reading for today. Israel are told that if they break the covenant, they disobey the commands, they will be judged as Sodom. And they did, and so they should have been judged as Sodom. But God's grace cuts in that he does not actually treat them as Sodom because of this small remnant, but also because he left a small remnant. He made them, people like Isaiah, that small remnant, he made them spiritually strong. So then Jerusalem was saved purely by grace, not because she was righteous. And in, at the end of this chapter 1, verse 21, uh, and uh, onwards from 21, it's all talking about Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She that was full of justice uh, is now full of murderers. So the final uh, part of the chapter is about how unfaithful Jerusalem has become. So she was saved not because of her own righteousness, but because of God's grace. And again, in all this talk about judgment, there is this huge encouragement of God's grace, because finally the biggest question I think that subconsciously or consciously preys upon our mind goes something like this, I believe in God's grace, but, but, my sin is so big, my, my commitment is so weak, is his grace enough for me? Now, no matter how you formulate the question, that I think is the ultimate question with so many of us. In fact, for all of us, at some point, at some time, in some way in our lives. And the whole message of all this judgment, etc., is so glorious that God's grace is so great that it's enough even for you and me. Now, reading on then from verse 21, he talks about how you are full of murderers in Jerusalem. Your princes, verse 23, are rebellious. Every one of them takes bribes. They don't judge the fatherless, and so forth. In verse 10, that's why they are called you rulers of Sodom. Jerusalem is likened to Sodom and Gomorrah, and her rulers are held responsible. Now, if that was the case, you can respect even more deeply Hezekiah's spiritual decision-making, because he made it when his uh, committee, if you like, his government, were full 
of people who were worthy of such condemnation. The rulers of Jerusalem, where Hezekiah and Isaiah were, were all of them taking bribes and all of them no good and were just rulers of Sodom. <coughs> so then, it's quite uh, an example then that Hezekiah did hold on to his principles despite being surrounded by people within the ecclesia who were clearly, as it says here, were clearly not uh, of God and were not righteous at all. And as I alluded to earlier, the thing with church life is that it's a bit of a train and uh, you get on the train and it's, it, you're just sort of a, you're a passenger and you go where the line takes you because there is a routine of meetings, etc. and the way things are done. And to be personally spiritually minded and to forge a real living personal relationship with God when you're in the presence of others who may be believers but are not living and being as they should, this is, I think, really the, the mark of spiritual strength and spiritual personality and spiritual individuality. And Hezekiah here and Isaiah are really great, uh, great examples of this. Now, it, it's not that they had become atheists or that they had... Uh, openly stated that we want nothing to do with God. As you can see from verse uh, 13 and onwards, they were very uh, religious, uh, doing all, all the incense and all, all the sacrifice and all this kind of stuff. But God says how much he hated it. He absolutely despised it. He says that the, the solemn assembly is to him uh, an abomination. And uh, one wonders whether that's a reference to the Passover, and of course we think of our own breaking of bread. And it's in the spirit of all this that Paul could write 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, be careful that you don't come together to condemnation, that you're not drinking wine to your condemnation rather than to your blessing. So then, it all comes to, to, to a head in verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says Yahweh. Now, that is a legal term. That is right out of the courtroom. To reason together, let us come into judgment. That is the idea. And the, the judge of all the earth is here pleading across the courtroom with, with his people. He's saying to them, although your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, as white as wool. Now this is something incredible, that when God enters into judgment with people who clearly were so far away from him and who were angering him, etc., he is pleading with them, as it were, in the court, to accept a total write-off amnesty. But he's not even saying, well, you know, yeah, well, you'll suffer a bit and we'll make some sort of uh, plea bargain, some sort of deal. He's saying that, look, your scarlet sins, I shall make as white as snow. I shall make you absolutely right. And this is very much Paul's idea in Romans, where he also is full of legal courtroom language, where the guy standing there condemned as a sinner is presented righteous, uh, not just let off, 
It goes beyond being forgiven and being let off. It goes to a state of being actually declared right. This is the whole idea of justification, of being declared right. No wonder he says justified by faith, because to believe that actually you've not only just been let off, but that in God's eyes you are high and exalted, as we saw earlier, in God's eyes you are whiter than snow because you are in Christ. Uh, this demands some faith. It really does. And you know, of course, how this happens, because Revelation talks about this and says that uh, our clothes are washed in the blood of the Lamb and they come out white. Now, of course, to, to, to get white out of red is... Uh, it demands some faith. It is totally counterintuitive. This is where real Christianity, the real belief in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and me, does not come easy. It is not something that you drift into, that you are schooled into by loving parents. This is a radical call to personally believe that I stand in this glorious status before him, not just let off, but right in the courtroom with God as the judge of all, reasoning together with us and saying, look, this is what I offer you. Not just let, let you off, not just turn a blind eye, not make some plea bargain where you, you have to suffer a bit, but not as much as you might have done. But I declare you to be right. So right back here in the Old Testament, you have the very idea that Paul uh, develops so strongly in Romans as being the, the heart of the gospel, that we are not just let off, but that through, ultimately, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his blood, which we now take in, in symbol, we really have been declared right and whiter than snow.